This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, psychologist Stuart Ablon is joined in conversation by Nicole Zapian, CIIS's Dean of Professional Psychology and Health, to explore the science of how people change. This event was recorded on June 6, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So good evening. Good evening. It is a real honor to be able to have a conversation with you today about your work and to learn more about how people change. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, everyone. Wonderful. So I want to just sort of introduce everyone a little bit to your work, and then I have a lot of questions. Sounds good. In the book that you've recently written, Changeable, um, the premise is that people essentially, that all people can change, and that it is not that they are willfully engaging in problematic behavior, but rather that they lack skills. Is that right? That's correct. So say a little bit about how that works. Sure. Well, the, there's long been what I describe as the conventional wisdom about challenging behavior, that when somebody is doing something we don't want them to do or not doing something we want them to do, whether that's at, in a home or a school or anywhere else, a workplace, we tend to assume that that behavior is willful. As you said, that people sort of behave this way in order to get things or avoid things or simply because they're not trying hard enough to behave well. And as a result, certain interventions sort of flow from that. And the interesting thing is that flies in the face of what is now probably about 50 years of research in the neurosciences that has documented very clearly that when people behave in challenging ways, it's not that they lack the will to behave well. What they lack are certain skills to behave well. And we can certainly go into more detail about the types of skills we're talking about. I'm definitely interested. What types of skills are we talking about? Uh, Well, (laughs) perhaps the easiest way to put it is flexibility, Mm -hmm. frustration tolerance, and a whole host of problem-solving skills. And given that we've got a, uh, an audience that has um, some clinical representation here, we could break it down even more specifically. And what we're talking about are things like language and communication skills. We're talking about self and emotion regulation skills. We're talking about flexible thinking skills. We're talking about social thinking skills. We're talking about attention and working memory skills. So a whole host of different things. But again, it's abundantly clear that people who really struggle with chronic behavioral challenges struggle with skills in those arenas. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're describing a set of skills that sound like executive functioning and memory and social skills and so on, and that all makes sense from a psychological perspective. Are there differences either in terms of... So let's, let's talk about the challenging behaviors that you want to apply these skills to, for example. Um, what would you characterize as challenging? And would that differ, for example, 
with what I would characterize as challenging and what society would characterize as challenging. And then if we blow that up even further, cultural differences right. and so on. It certainly would. I mean, it depends on the context, right? Um, you know, when I started doing this work, we were focusing particularly on kids and adolescents and particularly kids who were often described as explosive. So they were sort of the externalizing um, kids. And there it was pretty easy to classify what challenging behavior looked like because, I mean, you're talking hitting, kicking, screaming, uh, but, you know, uh, all the way to aggression, um, you know, pretty sort of dangerous behavior sometimes. As this work has grown, though, people have actually tried to apply our work to all types of challenging behavior, including what we might describe as internalizing behaviors as well. Mm -hmm. I, I like to define it pretty broadly, uh, to go back to something I've said already, which is really um, when people either aren't able to do things that people expect them to or want them to, or they do things that people aren't so wild about. And when I say people, it means yourself as well, you know, meeting your own goals and expectations that you have for yourself. Mm -hmm. So this gets me thinking, is there ever an opportunity or a reason for people to be explosive that's positive? So I'm thinking along the lines of political protest or along the lines of you know, standing up for yourself. Right. Can you say a little bit about that? I would say there is. And I would say to do those things well actually requires a fair amount of skill. Ah, back to the skills. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is anyone really skillful at all these things? Is anyone? No. I mean, does everyone have deficits? Or, Everybody no? has deficits somewhere in those different domains. And in the book, we have sort of a little checklist that is really empirically derived and validated. Yeah, I went through the checklist. Well, this is what I was going to say is everybody can, you can go through yourself. And what you'll find, surely, is you'll find areas of strength. You'll be like, oh, I'm really good at that. And you'll find things you're like, eh, uh, I'm not so strong at that. And I encourage people in the book <laughs> to be brave enough to ask loved ones wh whom you trust to actually take a look at the list as well and give you some honest feedback too. Because, you know, we, we may feel like we're strong in a particular area, but others around us might disagree. And my feeling, I say this to my kids, I have three kids of my own, uh, I say this to them all the time, everybody's working on something. I've never met somebody who's not working on something. We are all working on something. And so, you know, the, really what we try to do is help people identify the kinds of things that we might be working on. So I'm a couples therapist, so I oftentimes get two different people in my office, and one is saying, this would all be better if he or she changed, and the other one is saying, this would all be better if he or she changed. Yeah, they're both so they right. Each <laughs> Sometimes one's more right than others. You know, like one fits better in with a framework that we understand as well or good couple's behavior or empathic behavior, and the other one maybe is more controlling. Who gets to say who should change and how much? Well, and I guess when I hear words like controlling, what I say to myself is, why would somebody behave in a controlling fashion? Um, my thought is if they do, it's probably because they have a good reason. Um, there's good concerns they have, and maybe they're struggling with some of the skills necessary to pursue those concerns in a more adaptive way. So I'm going to try to drill down and understand what's behind it. And that's, ma that's a major theme of this book, which is that challenging behavior, whatever the flavor of it, is really just a signal that somebody's saying, I'm having a hard time contending with something the world is throwing at me with the skills I have. But you know what? I I've probably got a good concern there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've read the book. I don't know if everyone, if the audience has. So I want to kind of... It just came out uh, so they yesterday. Haven't, they so they haven't I'm, read it. <laughs> uh, I imagine a I'm lot of them the haven't. Here. I'd be really impressed if they did. But. You got a lot of speed readers in the audience. <laughs> um, 
So explain how you got into this work, and then I'd like you to read a section, because the kinds of challenging behaviors you talk about in the book are truly uh, gripping. Okay, sure. Well, first of all, let me say it's great to be back in the Bay Area, because that's part of how I got into this work. Um, we were chatting beforehand, and you now know both of my parents are mental health professionals, so I've always sort of been in this world. But actually, it was um, a story that I do tell in the book where I was in high school, and I got an internship working as a direct care staff member on an inpatient psychiatry unit for kids and adolescents, which, by the way, I should never have been anywhere allowed near the floor like that. I had no training. I had no idea what I was doing, but they were so horribly understaffed that any any you know, extra assistance was helpful. And that was my first um, exposure to really severe, challenging behavior and the punitive interventions that are applied to those behaviors and feeling like this really doesn't make a whole lot of sense because these people are suffering. Um, and then I actually, I, I came to Berkeley for graduate school. So I'm born and raised in Boston, but um, came to, to Berkeley f- for graduate school. And it sort of blew my mind being born and raised in Boston and coming out to Berkeley. Um, but I had the great fortune of, of um, working with two completely different mentors. Um, Dr. Stephen Hinshaw, who's an expert in externalizing behaviors locally, and um, the late Dr. Enrico Jones, who was a psychoanalyst who um, studied process correlates of outcome in different therapies. So I had this like split existence where I was working with challenging kids and how to figure, uh, struggling to figure out how do you help them comply with the expectations at home and at school, and at the same time studying what about their therapeutic relationships seems to be helpful. And ultimately, actually, was writing this book and sort of looking back on things, I realized that in many ways, those two worlds have sort of come together in my work, where I've really tried to figure out how do we help people who really struggle with their behavior and stay true to what we know is really the only reliable predictor of helping anybody change anything, and that is the degree of helping relationship between helper and helpee, the sort of what we clinically call the therapeutic alliance. But if you take it out of a clinical scenario, you can call it a helping alliance, working alliance, collaborative alliance, you name it. Excellent. Excellent. Would you read a little bit? Sure. So we talked about these five areas of skill struggles. And the first one that I mentioned, language and communication skills. There's a point in the book where I'm talking about these different uh, categories of, of skill struggles. And this is where I introduce language and communication skills. Language and communication skills. The meaning of, I don't give a shit. Language and communication skills are essential to handling life's challenges and behaving well. It's hardly surprising that the majority of children with specific language disorders also have psychiatric issues and behavioral difficulties. As an illustration, think of kids in the midst of their terrible twos. How skilled are misbehaving two-year-olds at at communication? Not very. As a result, they can't engage in negotiations, even pretty simple ones, to resolve disputes. Thankfully, most four, six, and eight-year-olds have better language communication skills that enable them to solve problems. This may be the primary reason we don't have something called the terrible eights. 
both children and adults with language and communication skills can become easily frustrated, sorry, language and communication issues can become easily frustrated when unable to express their concerns. Sometimes this frustration leads to explosive behavior, but it can also lead to what adults might regard as passive aggressive behavior. The person stares at you without speaking, seemingly obstinate and refusing to respond. In fact, she may want to respond, but she either can't find the words or is too slow to process them. As I've seen in my practice, older kids and some adults will sometimes compensate for language and communication deficits by saying things like, this is stupid. They don't think it's stupid, but they're used to the world not giving them enough time to process speech. They've learned it's easier to just dismiss someone or something is stupid. I once had a teenage patient who would respond, I don't give a shit, whenever I tried to engage him in conversation. Hey, I heard something happen in school yesterday, I'd say. Can you fill me in? He'd scowl at me and say, I don't give a shit. Well, you might not care, but we sort of need to figure this out. I want to make sure I understand your perspective, so just tell me what was going on. I don't give a shit. Fuck you. This was a typical conversation for this kid, one of the reasons his parents had brought him to see me. For months, I couldn't figure out what was going on. His constant negativity frustrated me, but I tried to practice what I preached and focused on identifying his skill struggles. Eventually, I wondered if he was having language and communication issues, even though he'd never formally, never been formally diagnosed with a speech or language disability. One day in my office, I said to him, hey, when I ask you about something that has happened to you, what's going on in your brain? Like, literally, what are you thinking about? He sat for a while in silence, pondering. Well, I start to think about what you asked. Okay, I said. So why don't you ever say that? I don't know. Well, you say you don't care. Yeah, I don't really mean that. If you don't mean it, why do you say it? To make the conversation stop. I continued this line of questioning, and we discovered the reasons he didn't like to talk with parents, teachers, or others was because nobody gave him enough time to process the information. They weren't rushing him out of impatience or a lack of empathy. They were assuming that he was refusing to respond. Later, when I asked him to fill me in on what happened the day before, and I waited patiently for him to speak, we sat in silence for 45 seconds before he answered. In the context of a conversation, that's an eternity. Try it yourself. Remain silent for 45 seconds after someone asks you a question. But at the end of those 45 seconds, he offered a clear, well-formulated thought. I don't give a shit had been a compensatory strategy, or as people in business, in a business context might say, a workaround. What he was really trying to say was, there's no way in hell this adult is going to give me enough time to process what he just asked me and then to formulate a response using language. So let's just call the whole thing off. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's incredible um, that once you remove the punishment aspect or the judgment that the patient is willful, suddenly the actual phenomenon can emerge. Yes, and this is, you know, we have a whole approach that we teach, but I often find myself thinking when things get a lot better, is it 
the actual approach or is it the shift in mindset that happens when you really just try to adhere to the philosophy of skill not will and the philosophy of everybody's trying the best they can to handle what's being thrown at them with the skills they have. And so if you remove that blaming notion of willfulness, it just opens up incredible possibilities. Mm -hmm. So I'm really struck by how in that 45 second time, when you eventually did get a response, you got enough information to be able to understand, okay, he can think through all of this, he just needs more time, he can formulate a response, okay, great. Are there ever any patients where they can't do that? Absolutely. Where there's just nothing, you get no data. Well, and so an example of that, and I give, I think I, yeah, I do, I give this uh, an example of um, this uh, young woman that I worked with who was on the autism spectrum, and um, we would go through this process of trying to collaborate to solve problems, and when I would invite her to brainstorm potential solutions, she would just stare at me. And as you can tell, I'm comfortable waiting for like at least 45 seconds. This is the benefit of psychoanalytic training as well. I'm like, I can hang out here for 50 minutes if need be. Um, but, uh, you know, so I would wait and nothing would come at all. And it became this little sort of joke of ours because I would say to her, so do you have any idea? And she would interrupt me finally and say, no. But I did sort of the same thing. I'm like, well, okay, when you say no, is it that you're just saying no without even really thinking about it? No. So you're thinking about it and you're not having any ideas? Yes. Okay. Is it that your brain is like starting to see like some maybe ideas, but then you're thinking maybe it isn't such a good idea or not one you want? No. So is it that just no ideas at all come? Yes. And literally, I mean, she just drew an entire blank. Nothing. So what's going on there? That's, I'm so curious. Well, for her, it was a cognitive flexibility issue. For her, it was she had a preordained solution in her mind, which is usually the one that people are not wild about, and people were asking her to generate some alternative solution. And she couldn't even do it. And when I tried to sort of play with her a little bit to try to get her to envision possibilities, she was so rigid and literal in her thinking that she was like, this is dumb. Why are we you know, thinking about things we can't do? Which is a lot of times what you try to do to generate potential solutions. You just sort of brainstorm and think, think out loud. Uh, and that just that didn't hit her brain right. Mm -hmm. um, Were you able to move her toward more flexibility? Uh, I was. Um, she's an incredible kid. Because one of the things we did a lot of thinking about is if somebody has a hard time generating solutions, like how do, how do people do it? And I actually spent a lot of my time thinking like when things go well, mm -hmm. what is our human brain doing? Because we don't give ourselves enough credit. And what's really interesting about problem solving is we adults sometimes like to give ourselves a lot of credit for like being these incredible problem solvers. But actually, it's pretty basic what we do. We usually either like meet in the middle, like a compromise between two people, or we come up with a different way of doing things than we first thought, or we have no idea what the hell to do and we ask somebody else for help. And those are basically the three problem-solving strategies we rely on. Ask for help, meet in the middle, or do it a different way. And I introduced these to her, and she was very artistic, so she actually um, uh, drew pictures. Let me see if I can remember this. Um, for, um, let's see, meet in the middle, ask for help. Uh, for the meet in the middle, she drew this beautiful um, 
Easter basket. It was right around uh, springtime to represent um, a meet in the middle. And then she drew a, um, I think it was like a pail. Oh, yes, a pail for ask for help because she said this should be something big you can throw anything in because actually you could ask anybody for help for anything. This is brilliant, right? And then she drew this big garbage can for do it a different way. And I asked her why it was a garbage can. And she says, I hate that one. <laughs> and I said, why do you hate that one? She says, because I'm bad at it. She had a hard time generating alternative solutions, as I mentioned. So, but what we would do with her is I would say, so what do you think? Do you think there's anything we could do about it? And she'd say, no. And I'd take out this little picture with her and I'd be like, well, let's walk through this. Is this one where we could meet in the middle? Or is this one where we could ask somebody for help? If we did, who would it be? Or is this one we could do a different way? Um, actually, I have a, if you, uh, indulge me here, a great end to the story with her because she, um, she ended up switching schools and she was going to visit uh, her new school and um, everybody was really nervous about how she was going to do on this, on this new visit day, uh, new student visit day. And she came back and told me about it. And she said that the whole day, the day was going well. They were making arts and crafts. She's very artistic. But then they said um, uh, that they were going to set up snack time. And they said, time, you know, you, you guys can go play on the um, playground while we set up snack. And all the kids ran off and started playing soccer. And she told me this. I'm like, oh, shit, this is not good. Because um, she hates soccer. And her description of why she hates soccer, by the way, she's like, um, I don't understand. You have to wear shin guards because people kick you in your shins, but you're supposed to kick the ball. It's like so stupid. There's a ball, you're supposed to kick the ball, but people kick you in the shins and you have to wear things so they don't kick you in the shins. Like it just didn't make sense with her logical brain. Um, so she hated soccer so I was like oh my god this is gonna be terrible um so I said so what'd you do and she said well I didn't play and I'm like oh boy and I said so what'd you do instead she said well there was a kid who also didn't go to play and she was standing right next to me I'm like oh god thank goodness right maybe they could do something so I said what'd you do and she said I asked her if she wanted to play I said awesome and what'd she say and she said sure I'm like oh this is so lovely I said so what'd you guys do and she said well I asked her if she wanted to go take a walk and she said no and I said, well, what'd you do? She said, well, I asked her what she wanted to do. And she said, do you want to go on the swings? I said, ooh, here's a test of her flexibility, right? I'm like, so what'd you say? She said, no. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, what'd you guys do? And she goes, I thought of the picture. And you know what she said? She said, um, I tried meet in the middle. And I said to her, what about if we go take a walk for a little bit and then go on the swings? She said this to the kid. And you know what the kid said? No. <laughs> but then she went, she's like, I thought I to myself, um, do it a different way. What would that look like? And she said, well, so I tried to think of something else we could do, but neither of us could think of anything else to do. <laughs> and I said, so what'd you do? She said, well, I went to the last one. I went to ask for help. And so she went and she found the teacher and she said, could you help us? And you know, the, the teacher said, well, you know, it's almost time for snack at this point, so why don't you guys help us come set up snack and we'll have snack. So it all ended okay. But the point is that we were able to build in cognitive flexibility with her. And if you ever find yourself, any of us, having a hard time generating solutions, think of those three options. It'll get the creative juices flowing. That's great. 
So I, I love the story, and I think it, it speaks to this idea that we have an education of scaffolding. So if we notice that someone doesn't have a particular skill in math or in chemistry or what have you, we break it down into smaller bits and actually explain clearly what the steps are and create the that's buckets right. or the schema first into which you can put the knowledge. That's right. And that's and exactly what you're doing with social skills. That's right. And I, if I, I think if I'm correct, it was Vygotsky, the developmental you're psychologist, right. who right. was sort of the, the originator of this notion of scaffolding and zones of proximal development. Uh -huh. And I think when you're talking about building any skill, that's the artistry is finding the sweet spot. Because if you do too much work for the person, they don't build the skill. But if you leave them too short, it's too frustrating, it's too aversive, and they don't build the skill. So, you know, our, our human brains only change with some stress, what neurobiologists call good stress. You need to feel some stress for your brain to change. So that's, you got to make the person work some, but not too much. So I had to stretch her brain so she's flexing those muscles of cognitive flexibility, but not too much or else she just gets too overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. This is, this is fascinating. You mentioned the clinical relationship or the therapeutic alliance. I want you to say a little bit more about that because I'm imagining that there are some pairings that work well and some pairings that don't work well. Like it requires the skill of empathy and sensitivity to know what that zone should be, um, to be able to attune, to be able to kind of tolerate the frustration and the fuck you that comes from the, yeah. the upset teenager and so on. Say a little bit about the pairing. Well, are there some look, clinicians think, who can't think, do it? Well, and I think the therapeutic alliance has been really well studied. And this was like one of my previous worlds here in, in Berkeley. And, and uh, you know, one of the fundamental components of forming any kind of a helping alliance is a sense of non-judgmental acceptance mm -hmm. and empathy. I mean, that's really the bedrock of it. And, you know, I think that's what's powerful about this approach that uh, that we teach is we're giving people a way to try to maintain that non-judgmental stance, even with people whose behavior is oftentimes so off-putting. I mean, you know, the interesting thing, I, I often um, liken our work to work that's been done with learning disabilities, where like when I was, you know, in uh, grade school, if I struggled to read 40 years ago, people would have thought I was lazy or dumb. Um, which was horrible because who was trying harder than anybody else in that classroom to read? The kid who was struggling to do so. I mean, kids who read easily, they don't try very hard, right? And so the fact that we thought these kids were lazy when they were working overtime, it was inhumane and so harmful. And thank goodness we don't really do that anymore as much anyways with with learning disabilities that are better recognized. But with challenging behavior, it's the same thing. We assume that people who are behaving poorly aren't trying hard enough. When actually, I tell people, they're trying harder than anybody else. It's the people who struggle with flexibility, frustration tolerance, problem-solving skills, who have to work overtime to behave themselves. And actually, interestingly, people say to me, you know, do you ever think there are people who don't try very hard to behave themselves well? And I say, absolutely. You know who those people are? Well-behaved people. <laughs> they don't have to try very hard. It comes naturally because they've got good problem-solving skills and flexibility and, and the like. Um, so, it, you know, it, I think the non-judgmental acceptance piece is extra important when it's um, behavior that is tough to be around. Uh, you know, we, the, the word that's used a lot these days in our work is um, dysregulation. We talk about people getting dysregulated very easily. Um, well, the funny thing about dysregulation is it's contagious. 
One person gets dysregulated and then the other one does. With challenging behavior, that happens so easily because when somebody behaves in a way we don't like, we take it personally. We feel disrespected, we feel hurt, we feel challenged, we feel like our buttons have been pushed, and then it's off to the races. So part of maintaining a helping alliance is to think the best of the person and to give them the benefit of the doubt and to be curious. And as a result, to try to stay calm yourself. And you know, if the bad news is dysregulation is contagious, the good news is that regulation is contagious too. I mean, that's how infants, you know, I mean, infants learn how to regulate themselves. It's not by accident. They learn because hopefully as an infant's screaming, there's an adult there who, if they've tried everything, you know, from changing the diaper to feeding to burping to rocking to whatever, is not going to scream back and is going to try to maintain some calm so that they can help the infant co-regulate with them. So you speak about co-regulation, and I'm, I'm aware that ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, which tend to be correlated with anxiety and depression and conflict issues and, and obstinate defiance disorder, a slew of things, are on the uprise. Oftentimes these things run in families. So there's some genetic component to ADHD or to you know, any number of these things. You might have two, folk, two people in a family who are trying, or three people, four people, who are trying to co-regulate, but they actually have the same deficits. Mm -hmm. What do you do then? Well, I mean, I, I actually, in some of my early writing and uh, with a colleague who, with whom I started this work, Dr. Ross Green, uh, quite a long time ago, we first conceptualized oppositional defiant disorder as a disorder of incompatibility. Oh, interesting. Now, first of all, calling that a disorder is absurd anyways. We're the like only civilized nation in the world that would create a psychiatric disorder that is oriented around not doing what people say. But um, but it, it's, it's really a disorder of incompatibility between person and environment or person and another person. And, and part of what you're talking about is when that incompatibility is two sets of lagging skills that rub up against each other. And you know, for what's a classic example, inflexibility met with inflexibility. What does that mean? Meltdown, it's got nowhere to go, right? Whereas you can take one person who's very inflexible and pair them with a very flexible person and you'll have much more compatibility there. So I think, you know, um, it's especially challenging in circumstances where you've got people with matching sets of lagging skills. Now, one of the things that I love about our work is the process of teaching people how to collaborate with one another to solve problems is a two-way street. And so, for instance, you know, we often, with adults and kids, when this is applied in those settings, people talk about helping the kids build skills. Mm -hmm. Our research has shown that when the adults practice the approach to help the kids build skills, guess who else ends up building their skills? Parents, for instance, demonstrate better capacity to take other people's perspectives into account, to empathize, better flexibility, which is great news because it means like, you know, you can teach an old dog new tricks, evidently, which is good. Say something about context. So if if someone is at a school where they're using your um, approach 
and you know the faculty and the students uh, maybe maybe we should employ that here at CIS are are utilizing everything and everyone's developing their skills and then folks go home to their home environments and then it's not being utilized there to what extent can it transfer to new environments yeah well and you're asking the question very nicely um, but I, I often have it asked this way which is this is great but unless you're planning to put this person in a bubble where people only collaborate with them in empathic ways, um, they're going to be in trouble because they hate to break it to you, but they're about to go out into a world where you know, their boss isn't going to be curious why they were late and empathic, mm-hmm. right? There's going to be punitive. So aren't you sort of setting people up for a fall um, when they go to you know, the sort of, quote, real world, which I want to say something about that in a moment. But, um, but actually, it, you know, what I think we're trying to do is help people develop the skills of flexibility, of frustration tolerance, of problem solving. So when they find themselves in another context that challenges them, they have those skills to rely on. So, you know, in, in my world, when somebody then meets somebody who isn't going to interact with them in this way at all and might take a very authoritarian view and a very punitive view, they'll have the ability to stay calm, problem solve, be flexible, which, you know, my comment about sort of the real world, that is the real world. I mean, if we all think about our average day, we don't spend most of our time as adults rapidly complying with authority without thinking about it. We spend most of our time employing flexibility, frustration tolerance, and problem-solving skills all day long to take each other's perspectives into account and to try to arrive at solutions that not only work for us, but take into account other people's needs as well. Is that culturally situated? So, for example, I'm imagining if I'm in North Korea right now, it's probably in my best interest to comply. Uh, well, you don't have to go to North Korea either. Mm. You could be a uh, black or brown boy in East That's New right. York um, when confronted by an authority figure, uh, law enforcement, etc. So, right. uh, it's entirely um, context dependent. And but you know, again, what I would say then is, in those instances, um, being able to be compliant is actually a skill. I mean, you actually need all those things I just talked about, mostly flexibility and frustration tolerance, to immediately comply with some authority when necessary. Okay, okay. I like that. So I want to pivot for a second. I want to talk about something that is kind of um, maybe in the ether in general in mental health, and that is this idea of being able to take any technique or any tool and to put it into a chat bot or a, like I think TESS is an AI tool that's being developed to do psychotherapy. Can your process be manualized, mechanized, put into some AI chat bot app thing <laughs> to deliver skills at the ready? I don't know. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm open-minded to, you know, I try to not to... Because you practice flexibility. Yeah, look, I, I, hey, if it could, you know, maybe that could be helpful. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical because, you know, I think the greatest sort of force in positive, healthy, neurotypical human development is, um, is relational reciprocity and engagement and mirroring. And, you know, when I, when I teach an approach, I want to be very clear, I don't feel like I'm, I, I don't teach techniques. 
because I mean, techniques are something you can apply, you can do to someone. I, I try to give people guideposts to foster a process, but it's a relational process. And um, I, I do a lot of work with a, a guy now who, um, who's a big trauma researcher and clinician. And um, one of the things he's helped me to see in our work that I think is really important is that the types of interactions that are really regulating and, and literally build new connections in the brain, they all have some similarities to them. They're all repetitive, relational, rhythmic, rewarding, back and forth interactions. And hey, if artificial intelligence could do that, I guess I'm open-minded to it, but a little skeptical. Me too. And it's, it, yeah. Huh. Is there anyone that you have found you can't help so far? Um, I would say there certainly are people that I and we haven't helped, but I'm not sure that I would say there are people that we can't. Um, because I will go back to the same basic thought, which is that people do well if they can, and that everyone wants to do the best they can. Um, and everybody would prefer doing well to doing poorly. And um, even in the most difficult, challenging, most severe circumstances, it, you know, there's, there's room for incremental movement. I mean, in some of the toughest settings we work in, in prisons, you know, correctional facilities, and psychiatric hospitals for you know, uh, chronically mentally ill adults, um, you, you may not help someone get to the point where they want to be able to get to, or you, and you may want them to, but that doesn't mean you can't make progress. And I'm not sure I've, I've encountered a situation where I, I feel like progress can't be made now. That's encouraging. Is there a role? So we're at CIS. CIS um, was founded on an image of the bridge between East and West philosophies. Part of what we think about is change, and we also think about acceptance. Um, the entire premise of your book is about change and incremental growth, and we're sort of preoccupied right now at this moment in time with optimizing everything and growing and human flourishing and so on. I sometimes wonder about the existential dilemma of acceptance of the shadow side. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, the title of the book, Changeable, may be somewhat misleading because the type of change that we're talking about isn't someone trying to change somebody else. It's somebody trying to collaborate with someone else. And um, it's not, like I said, it's not something you can do to someone. It's something you have to do with someone. And so ultimately, uh, the interaction partner, the other person, um, has to feel it's worth engaging in this type of collaboration together. And um, if not, okay. Um, and and I, have, I will say I have found many instances where understanding alone, I think, facilitates change. And it may not be brain change. But it's changing patterns of interaction because you, you're you're better understood, and um, you know uh, people ask me all the time like things like how do you uh, how do you get somebody to listen to you, and I always say, well that's easy, 
they look at me like, what? I said, you listen to them. I mean, if you listen hard and ask questions and are curious and inhibit the very human response, by the way, that we all have, when somebody's saying something, we're all thinking how that impacts us and what we think about it. It's really hard to inhibit that and just stay focused on, let me understand what's going on for you. And it's amazing how just understanding alone can make a world of difference. And I haven't necessarily suggested that person needs to change in any way. Mm. Okay. So there is an acceptance part. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of my guiding mantras that I, in the most difficult circumstances I always repeat to myself, I've alluded to this earlier, is um, <laughs> I may not love the person's solution to the problem, but I bet they have a good concern. And to me, that's part of acceptance is, you know what, they're doing the best they can, and there's a good concern there. And um, I need to understand what that's all about. And it is amazing when you unearth people's concerns. Um, so sometimes they're very surprising. Sometimes there's just this experience of, oh, wow, gosh, of course. I can't tell you how many times in our work in schools in some of the poorest congressional districts in the U.S. where there's really punitive school discipline and people, we teach them to get curious about what's going on for kids and to look past the behavior. And all of a sudden, they learn these things that these kids are contending with. And again, it often doesn't even need to proceed to problem solving. It's just an awareness and an understanding of what they're contending with and an incredible uptick in acceptance of that person as a whole self. Definitely, definitely. So you've talked a little bit in the book about your, your application of your work to hospital settings, psychiatric units, um, medical facilities, correctional facilities, and so on. Then you skip to a section where you talk about marriages and um, home life and the work world and all of those kinds of relationships and change. Can you say a little bit about those two general groupings of sure. application and sure. then talk a little bit about each? Sure. I mean, that was a, sort of the impetus of the book because I'd been doing so much work in those other settings you described. And actually somebody came to me and said, did you ever think of, of writing something about the broader applications of this? Because one of the fascinating things is if we work in a school or a hospital or a treatment setting, people would learn this work and they would invariably have this aha moment where they would say, you know, I think we could actually apply this amongst ourselves, you know, the team here, not just the folks that we're trying to help, the, the staff, the teachers. Um, and people would realize, huh, uh, the principal of the building, um, how I'm going to contend with the teacher who isn't performing in the way that I would like. Could I apply these same ideas? And people would um, try to get other people to embrace this and find the irony in that they found themselves trying to impose collaborative problem solving on people and realize that, gosh, maybe we need to practice what we preach and, and maybe they're you know, applications for this in other places. And um, I think really any place you have people having a hard time getting along with one another. And you mentioned, you know, you work in couples therapy. Um, and I used to do some couples therapy, but you end up doing couples therapy if you do family therapy focused on kids, because especially with very challenging kids, they tear marriages apart. And when you have, you know, uh, partners at each other's throats, I, I often find what I call, it, it's what I call dueling solutions. Mm 
So one partner's got this idea how you should do something, and the other partner's got this idea. And again, I find the relevance here is let's get underneath the solutions to what are the concerns mm -hmm. underneath those? And then maybe we can bridge some common ground. So it really just led to thinking about vast applications of this. And even you know, in our own work, in my, uh, the program that I run, um, you know, we try to practice what we preach all the time. But if you're really serious about it, then it comes down to you know, things like um, employee evaluations mm -hmm. and goals. Uh, should they be skill-focused? And if somebody isn't meeting an expectation of yours and the job performance is suffering, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? This brings up a question. How long does it take to build a skill? So, for example, if I have an employee, and I have many employees, and I do write evaluations, and I'm also a therapist, so it becomes really interesting when I know that what's underlying the skill deficit could be treated in a particular way, but I'm the boss. I'm not their therapist. So how long will it take? I mean, what would what's, what's a reasonable amount of time to think about, well, I need you to come to work on time. I know you're disorganized. So you don't have planning skills. I still need you to be here on time. Right. I have a terrible answer for you. Okay. It depends. That is a terrible answer. <laughs> I told you. Um, it, I'm going to be inflexible it, about that. It depends on the type of skill mm -hmm. and the severity or of the sort of deficit, if you will, how big of a skill struggle it is. Some skills, I think, can come along quicker, or even in the meantime, you can sort of build compensatory strategies, like um, you know, organizational skills. Somebody who really struggles with managing time, for instance, you can build some compensatory strategies pretty quickly. There are other skills, like perspective taking and flexible thinking. It takes a lot more repetitions to, to see change. Now, um, I think to myself, though, in the workplace, too often, if somebody isn't meeting our expectations in certain ways because of some lagging skills, we're too quick to try to move them out. And the reality is, we haven't talked about this at all, but the flip side of a skill struggle is oftentimes a unique and incredible gift. So, you know, it's, I think it's true of all of us that our um, greatest strength is also our greatest challenge. Can you give an example of that? I think that's well, an interesting I, idea. Well, for instance, I mean, uh, flexibility is probably the easiest example. And, and you see this like, you know, kids who are inflexible, we call them stubborn and, you know, they Willful. perseverate on things. And then they get to be an adult and we're like, God, he's got such good perseverance, right? <laughs> like, stick to itiveness. You know, he's the guy I want on the team. You know, he's going to, right? Um, but it's true. I mean, it's 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 the flip side of the the same coin. And my, my point, just being on a team, you want a diverse set of skills. And uh, you know, it's uh, I think more than ever we realize that good collaboration and teamwork nowadays we realize is really based on a diversity of perspectives and skills coming together. And so I think good managers and supervisors are trying to foster that. But that means also helping to support the underside where there's some lagging skills and. And that's what management should be anyways, is, is helping people to build skills. But again, look at what we do most of the time with management is, is try to motivate better performance. And punish when it doesn't work out. Right. And neither of those are effective. And actually, it's very interesting because the more you use a carrot on a stick to try to get somebody to do something, not only do you eat away at their internal drive. I mean, this has been shown thousands of studies, a negative correlation between the use of external reinforcers and internal drive. But the other thing is you actually encourage unethical behavior because what happens is people get very focused on getting the stuff as opposed to the actual goal that you're using that 
carrot on the stick to try to get them to accomplish. And we set that in motion very young with kids all the time. Is there any role for reward and punishment um, in psychological health? Well, you know, I try to answer this question. I follow the research and try to answer it a bit empirically by saying, look, um, people sometimes say, look, you're too critical of traditional sort of rewards, punishments, things. And the way I, I answer that is I say, look, I, I'm not sure that's fair. I'm fine with rewards and punishments for people using them for things they're good at. Um, but don't use them for things they were never intended to be used for. And perhaps the best example of that is school discipline. Rewards and punishments, very good at teaching expectations like what's right versus wrong and motivating people to do things they're quite capable of doing but don't really feel like. So if the problem is you don't know what's on the list of right or wrong, or you know and you're capable of doing it but you don't really feel like it, great. But reward and punishments, they were never intended to build helping relationships. They were never intended to help people who have a hard time staying regulated to stay calm. And they were never intended to build any of the skills that we're talking about this evening. So I just say to people, look, I want to be very clear. I'm not blaming reward and punishment programs. I blame us for using them for things they were never intended to be used for. And then being surprised when, A, they don't work. And what I get more concerned about is, B, they actually make matters worse. There can be real side effects to an over-reliance on motivational procedures. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, this has me thinking of all the playground strategies that are being employed at my kids' schools, you know, sort of taking away of recess and, no, you can't have tetherball for two weeks. And it's, um, it's quite problematic, isn't it? Well, and people say, well, you know, it works for some kids. And sure, to, but it depends on your definition of work. Like work means they're compliant. Okay. Um, although, frankly, most of those kids... Are not. <laughs> they, well, they'd be compliant with anything. And then there's a small minority of kids who are the ones who struggle all the time again and again, what we call the frequent flyers of school discipline. And, and we know from every large public school system in, in North America, those things like detention, suspensions, expulsions, they don't work. For that, they're disproportionately applied to a small percentage of kids for whom they do not work. I mean, school discipline is, you know, is applied to about 10, 12% of the kids, um, much more than the rest of the population. And it's for those kids that doesn't work for. So we use it the most for the kids it doesn't work for. You go into schools and you help schools reform not only their discipline program, but the entire way in which they think about behavior. Um, Try. <laughs> Say a little bit about how effective that is when you go into an entire school with coaching programs and, and help folks. Well, so that's the key. Um, you know, the, the traditional uh, sort of method of um, professional development in schools, and this is not just true of schools, but, but, but it is of schools, is um, what we call spray and pray training. Where you uh, you show up for a PD day and you spray a bunch of training over people and you cross your fingers and leave and pray that they're going to do something different. And there's this whole field of implementation science that has grown up during the time that we've been doing this and we've learned the lessons from it the hard way. The reality is, this is a great study that was done uh, about 16 years ago now um, by Joyce and Showers in schools that showed that those kind of trainings, even if people love them, like you had a PD day, everybody's like, oh, this is the best thing in the world, this is great. If you had 100 people there, only 5%, so five of those people are going to do anything different as a result of that training. And it's the most flexible ones already. <laughs> uh, it, and it, it's probably the ones who needed it the least, yeah. actually. Yeah. 
Um, so I hate to say it, but a lot of our sort of training time and resources get lost. So the antidote to that is you need to make sure you pair enough training with coaching. That's what changes behavior. So when we go into schools, we do a ton of training, but we're there working with them on a weekly basis in small groups and walking them through the approach. And it's tough because what we're trying to do is not just get them to practice the process. We're trying to get them to shift their mindset from will to skill and to get a whole group to do that. It's hard. This is wonderful. I wish I'd met you early in my career. I worked in a public urban middle school here in the city before I became a clinician, and it was really apparent, I was a math teacher, it was really apparent to me that there was a handful of kids for whom we simply couldn't quite capture their attention, get them to focus, get the discipline problems to kind of get organized, and it, it came to the mental health field for that reason, and uh -huh. it would have been really helpful to have some sort of a framework. And, and you know what's interesting is a lot of times people will say about those kids, we just haven't found the right way to motivate them yet. Mm -hmm. Where it's, they're just barking up the wrong therapeutic tree. That's right. It, it's, it's not about motivation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to shift our focus to the aging population. Um, I'm a member of the sandwich generation, currently have some young kids at home, aging parents, and it's good fun. And what I'm watching with the aging folks is, you know, Alzheimer's and early onset dementia and so on, the, the inflexibility is setting in. Some of the same types of characteristics that you're describing in, in schools are happening with our, with, with our aging elders. Um, say a little bit about the application of your approach to our seniors. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, thinking about my grandparents right now, I'm incredibly lucky to have both of my father's parents alive. They are... Don't be so people, wow, they're like, I'm not that old. No, uh, no actually, you can say wow, because they're 100 and 101. So, wow, okay. wow right? Um, but, you know, my grandfather always reminds me of the similarities. Um, he's this great study, uh, he loves to study the mind. He's really sort of a natural-born sociologist or anthropologist, but he, um, he or psychologist, um, He's always saying to me, observing things about himself, about how he feels like an infant again. Mm -hmm. um, and whenever I try to help him something with, uh, help him with something that he doesn't need help with, he shoes me off and he reminds me that the very young and the very old do not like to be helped. Um, for the same reason. One of the reason. three techniques. He doesn't like that one. <laughs> yes, that's right. But it's for the same reason because their you know the capacities aren't exactly where they want them to be. Now I, I don't. Um, really know truly the applications of this work uh, with our elders. Um, I have, you know, s some folks have begun to apply it um, in geriatric settings and with fairly good results, but I think it's a sort of a, a new frontier. Um, but I find it hard to believe that it's not going to be helpful to use an approach that respects the dignity of our elders takes their concerns very, very seriously and patiently tries to make sure that they are equal contributors to solutions that are about them and their lives. Mm -hmm. okay. So we've just described the two ends of the demographic spectrum in terms of age. And I, what about in the middle in marriages where, there, where there's equality? between the two partners, ostensibly equality, between the two adults right. who are coupled. It's a little bit different. If I don't like your behavior 
and you don't like my behavior, and they're going to come to my office to fight, it's a little bit of a different dynamic. Right. I'm not about trying to just solely respect and empathize. I actually want you to be my partner, and I'd like it to be kind of pleasant sometimes, right. perhaps. Right. Maybe. Well, and to be able to do that, both of you are going to need to listen hard to each other and display a fair amount of flexibility. And that flexibility. It, it all goes back to skills. <laughs> it really all goes back to skills. I mean, I look, I look at interactions in couples the, the same way. Now, um, as you're pointing out, though, a lot of the relationships we were talking about have power imbalances. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, in a healthy couple relationship, you're talking about a, a power-neutral relationship. Um, but navigating those kinds of relationships means figuring out a way that everybody's concerns can get addressed. And how do you do that? <laughs> it starts with understanding what those concerns and needs are. And that's the process of listening and understanding. And I don't know any long-term relationship um, that survives uh, that people don't have to practice a lot of flexibility ultimately in. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So this is a good skill to, to train early. Well, I, and to continue, <laughs> yes, to I know train. You're, you're partially joking, but you know the, the reality is: look, we're talking a lot about folks with challenging behavior, and I'm talking tonight about kids who with whom we really struggle. But the easy kids, I think we miss a golden opportunity because these kids have decent skills, so they can comply with adult authority in this power imbalance. But I think we're just teaching the next generation of adults that when there's a problem the way you solve it is you sort of figure out who's bigger and stronger because that person's concerns are going to carry the day. They're going to overwhelm the other person. So I think a lot of these kids are just waiting to get older and bigger and stronger so they can sort of impose their will on others. And imagine if with kids with pretty good skills, so it's easy to do this with, early on we practiced a lot of solving problems in mutually satisfactory ways and taught kids that when there's a problem, it's more important to stop and try to understand where you're coming from first and foremost than figure out if I've got the power. That you could work towards win-win solutions to problems. If we really practice that with kids to try to produce a whole generation of adults that were better at solving problems collaboratively in mutually satisfactory ways, it would be pretty amazing what things could look like. So this is interesting. Maybe I'm not doing this right, but I want to, this is from my own family life. So I have two kids. One's almost 14, a girl. It's good fun, eye rolling and so on. Um, (laughs) The other one is almost nine, kind of an intense little guy. And I sometimes disallow them having their earbuds or having technology. Like we'll get in the car and we have to collaborate on what we want to listen to on the radio. And they hate it. Like, mom, what are you doing? You know, like everybody else is here. Like, I just want to listen to what I want to listen to. And we go through that whole discussion of why I'm so weird and why I'm insisting that we do this the old school way. We do the same thing with watching something on TV. We have two TVs. I, I guess many families have more. And I insist that they decide on an appropriate movie that is appropriate for the nine-year-old and that we can all agree on. And it's it's hellish. Like it's so much easier to just say, put something else in the other room or put your earbuds on and go to your room. But I don't do it because I want to train this skill. And I see so many families who don't have moments of practice. They actually can split off and everyone can get what they want from a very young age due to technology. And as a result, has no opportunity to practice any of the three problem-solving abilities. 
You layer on top of that everything that's going on in terms of race and class and all kinds of issues with inclusion. And I'm actually really worried about our millennials and Generation X folks who have no opportunity to practice. They can just opt out. Can you say, am I the the weird mom, the only mom that's doing this? Or like, is this valuable? You might be. No, um, <laughs> no, you're not. Um, the psychologist always says that. And I, look, I try to take a balanced view on this because I, I share some of those concerns for sure. Um, and I had somebody recently remind me that some of the concerns that we have with people shoving their earbuds in and you know, burying their face in technology and not interacting, that these were similar concerns that we had a long time ago when a different form of technology came out called the printing press. And that people were really worried that people would bury their noses in books and <laughs> and never interact with the outside world. So I try to be open-minded that maybe all this technology is not the end uh, of our human interactions like this. And yet, yeah, um, you know, there's cause for potential concern. And I think as parents, as educators, as clinicians, we want to try to push on that so that people have to try to practice engaging with one another. Now, if you were in my office and you were having problems at, you know, at home over what you know, everybody wanted to watch different things, what I would do is I'd go around and get everybody's perspective on the table. And I would drill down and make sure they're very clear and I find it is equally important to do that with us adults because sometimes we have these vague concerns like it's bad for you. <laughs> well, what do you mean? And we, we have to be more specific than that. So I'd press you on, um, okay, what skills are you wanting them to practice? Uh -huh. And because that might not be the only way to practice it. It could be other ways to practice it. And maybe that isn't the best way to practice it. Maybe they're open to practicing in other ways. I don't know. So you can see I try to make everybody in the context of solving problems um, practice their skills. Even us adults practice our flexibility also. Fair enough. Makes sense. Yeah. Wonderful. How do you select a movie for your kids, with your kids? How do you collaborate on what's on the radio? We don't watch movies because we can never figure out anything decent to watch. Um, uh, partially, the last time I tried this, I was like, you know, let's watch an, an old movie from when I was a kid. You know, that was just a great movie. And I pick a movie and like two minutes into, I think the thing was rated G back when I was a kid, two minutes into, I was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. This is like offensive and the language is awful and forget it. Let's not watch it. Let's go outside and do something. But. And do they all follow along? Nobody says no. Uh, no, they'll, you know, they'll want to watch something of their own. They want to watch Netflix on their own. But uh, in all kidding aside, I say to myself, all right, why do I want to watch a movie with them? Is it that I want to watch a movie with them, or is it that I want to have a shared experience in time? And if it's shared experience in time, is movie the only way to do that? Maybe they could have their Netflix by themselves, and maybe we can do something else together. And so, well, excellent. This is uh, this is wonderful. Can you say a little bit about what's next for you? You know, the book comes out today. Uh, the book it came out yesterday. Yesterday, yes. excuse me. Um, so. Uh, Actually, the next thing is I wrote with a colleague a book that's coming out two months from now called The School Discipline Fix, which is aimed, as you can tell, squarely at reforming school discipline. Um, I think schools provide just a tremendous opportunity. We've got uh, kids, the majority of their waking hours, the majority of their youth, at a place where there's a natural social milieu and a bunch of trained adults. 
right, that are hired and trained um, natural opportunity. And I think traditional school discipline is an abysmal failure. And the problems of the disproportionate um, applications of it uh, as well across race lines is, is incredibly problematic. So, um, so that's a big focus um, moving forward with me. And uh, after that, I'm sort of probably take a breath and see what's next. I can imagine that there would be another book after that for the workplace. Maybe. Workplace reform? Yes. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Hmm. Like I'll let help. you have your breath, though. That's okay. <laughs> well, I'm pausing because I, I just like helping kids and families so much that uh, to say. Hmm. Wonderful. Um, I want to thank you so far for your time and the conversation. It's been really illustrative. Thank you. I've thank enjoyed you it. so much. Of course. Fun. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>